Changing gear. Quick question. How many of you have ever been stuck in the middle seat of a budget airline? Hands up. Okay. Uh, what is the longest flight you've ever done in the middle seat on a budget airline? How much? 30. Three zero. Oh, my goodness. Uh, where were you flying from? From France. And you were on Air France, which is a budget airline. No. <laughs> Was it on Air France? Well, that's pretty impressive. So th 30 hours on the middle seat of a budget airline. I once did... Uh, anyone else have anything close to that? Who's done an international flight on a budget airline in the middle seat? Yeah, ugh. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that can help. <laughs> Imagine that otherwise, 30 hours without a break. Oh, um, it could be like church. Um, so uh, I remember once getting on the plane, Los Angeles to Sydney. Uh, back in the day, I'd been at a conference, United Airline, before they upgraded to the Dreamliners, the old 747s, um, uh, tiny seats, tiny, tiny. And if you've ever flown back from the States, you know that the planes leave, the flight leaves at like midnight from LAX and you fly for 14 hours. And I got in, and now I'm not racist, but let me just say the person next to me looked like uh, he was American, and I could tell that from his girth. It was substantial. And I sat in there, and I thought, oh, this is going to be terrible. Uh, and then next to me, I thought, oh, there's an Australian. That's great. He came in, and, and he was one of those Australians. He was a young guy, and he'd been out sightseeing and skateboarding in summer in L.A. since about 7 that morning. And he'd come straight to the plane in his singlet and his shorts and his thongs, and we smelt him coming. And so I spent 14 hours trying not to touch him, trying not to smell him, leaning over, getting squished by an American on this side. And I thought that is just a great metaphor for life. So much of the time, we just get, we just get squeezed on all sides, don't we? We have so little space to be who we really want to be. We're constrained on all fronts. And what we're tr going to do over the next four weeks is think together about how we make space in our lives, uh, how we make space to be the kinds of people we really want to be. Because one of the things that we realize, that you may realize as we get older, is it is often our own choices and attitudes to things that put us in the middle seat of life and then constrain our choices. So it's stuff our past self does that constrains and limits how our present self can live. And so the goal of this series is to say, how can present you make choices so that future you thanks you because future you has a little more space in their lives? And, and one of the, the major factors that constrains us and uh, robs us of space to be who we want to be is our attitude to money, uh, is finances. And we all know that, don't we? We know that, um, and, and the series isn't, isn't just about money. In fact, what we're doing today is we're thinking about me, my stuff, stuff, and God. But we know that the choices we've made in the past shape our current experience now and our financial decisions and our financial attitudes in the past uh, start to bear fruit now. And what we want to do over the next little while is say, well, hang on, let's take stock and say, as a church, how do we make a bit of a correction to 
create a bit of space. So maybe your future self is not in the middle seat, but maybe is in the aisle seat with just a little more space to get up and move and breathe. You know, debt free, living within your means, generous, uh, free of worry. Imagine that, free of fear around money. Able to be uh, who you are, no matter what you have, content. How wouldn't that be good? Now, you may not be there now, but under God, he's going to take us there. And uh, we're going to create a community where we have a little more space. Because our job, our goal, our mission as a church is to connect deeply with God and then to learn from this God how to live truly great lives. And so that's what we're going to try and do. So a uh, question for you. Uh, turn to the person next to you. We're doing a lot of this this morning and, um, or around about you. Uh, and what is your earliest, just off the top of your head, your earliest memory of money? Uh, who grew up hearing this, money doesn't grow on? Yeah, is that funny? So what does that mean? It's, 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 You've got to work for your money, right? Um, I, I, it was interesting. My family, it's, you know, um, uh, not just our memories, but often how we live now is a function of just internalized messages and attitudes about money and possessions and wealth that we've just absorbed from our families of origin. And we, don't, we sometimes don't even know we have these attitudes until we've started to reap the fruit of living them out. And uh, that's a challenge, right? So um, I, in my family of origin, so it was very, the, the attitudes around money were shaped very much by being refugees from the Holocaust, from having everything and then leaving Germany with nothing. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, what, what you had, money wasn't important, but it was security. So education was the fact my grandfather was a doctor, my mother became a doctor. That's what, that was your security because no matter where you went in the world, no matter where you fled, you could still feed your family if you were a doctor, right? So that was the, that's the drive to education when you've seen how fleeting your hold on resources are, like when you can lose everything overnight and you just leave with the clothes on your back. Um, you realize... You know, so that's shaped a lot of me. And then the, the second thing that shaped me was uh, money is not about me. I can't rely on it, but what I can rely on is education and family. So the Jewish network of families who would look after each other in successive waves of pogroms and migration. If you got out first, you got established, and then the next generation came out and you looked after them. And a corollary of that is what really matters about money is family capital. Uh, it doesn't, it's not, doesn't matter how much you have. What matters is how much you leave to your kids and your grandkids and what legacy you can leave, preferably in a Swiss bank account, though even the Swiss managed to screw the Jews in the Second World War, right? Um, uh, so that's, that, it's funny. And then you don't realize, except as you grow older, how much these things shape you, right? And then you suddenly, oh, man, I'm actually a little bit like my... You know, mum, I didn't ever think I'd be like that, right? And now I am. Wow, how did that? So then what you've got to do, or what we've got to do as a spiritual community, is say, listen, let's stop and think not just about the messages we internalized from our families of origin, nor the messages we may hear every day from the financial services industry or the advertising industry that, that are designed to breed fear and discontent. Uh, with our financial situation. Let's learn from Jesus uh, a little bit about how to handle money. So let's have a think about that and um, 
we're going to do that now. Uh, we're going to think about me, my stuff, and God. And uh, this story that um, Jesus told, uh, you're probably familiar with it. Uh, these three blokes um, and uh, the master entrusts them with varying amounts of money, goes away, comes back. Two of them have done really well with it, and one of them has messed it up. And uh, it's quite a story. And it tells us a bunch of really important stuff. The first thing it tells us is, uh, and this is a, a massively important, um, massively, we're just having some technical challenges here. I might have to do it that way so it all, okay, we'll do it that way. It's not ideal. Everything I have belongs to God. Uh, this is the first thing. In this story, when the master leaves, he entrusts to the um, to his servants uh, the possessions that he has. And uh, it's incredibly significant to start off by saying um, from this story and as Christians that, that what we have uh, is not ours. So let's do a little exercise now. Look around and, uh, and think for a moment what in this space, what in your experience right now is something that you are solely responsible for bringing into being? What are you, what is yours here that you solely have created and brought into being? Is, is there anything? Can you think? Let's think. No? What's that? Their next door? Their next door? Yeah, but <laughs> I don't think you were solely responsible for that, Byron. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I understand. Joint Joint, yeah, it was, it was a joint venture. That's right. Yeah, John? You're really good. So you're really good at being sinful. Yeah, you've been in our small group for a few years, and I can attest to that. That's <laughs> you, we, so that's right. So we bring our own agency, perhaps, would be a way to say that. But everything comes from God. Like, um, the air you breathe, did do you deserve that? Did you work for that? No. Um your very being itself, before you existed, did you do something to cause yourself to exist? Well, by definition, you can't, right? Like, the ve everything is actually a gift. Everything is a gift. Everything comes from God. And that goes so counter to our culture. The messages we get from our culture are, uh, as individualistic consumers... We are told that you work hard and then what you work for and what you accomplish, this is yours, right? It's, you've earned it. It's, you have a right to this. Well, nothing is, nothing is earned in one sense. I mean, at another level, yes, we work hard with what we have. But um, I remember years ago reading uh, uh, an interview with Warren Buffett, the, um, you know, arguably one of the world's most successful investors and a brilliant, brilliant man. And, and Buffett, Buffett's saying, and he's not, a, he's not a religious guy, but he just goes, you know, I won the genetic lottery. Being born at a time and a place in history where my particular ability for understanding and remembering numbers and allocating capital is extraordinarily well rewarded. Any other time in history, pretty much any other place in the world, and he would have been, um, you know, fodder for an animal to eat because 
He's no great hero. He's no great warrior. He's no great hunter-gatherer. But at that time and place, post-Second War, World War, United States, he won. The, and, and he said, it's just a genetic lottery. It's just, uh, and as, as, a, as a spiritual person, I'd say it's just a gift from God. It's just there. So uh, our intellectual ability comes from God. Our educational background comes from God. Now we, you know, everything. The privilege that we have being born in this country. Um, we, we take it for granted, but let me tell you, if you, you know, if you'd spent the last 30 years living in a refugee camp in southern Sudan, your life would look very different, wouldn't it? Um, so we, we kid ourselves. We think that it's ours, but Jesus is really clear. Um, it's really God's, and we are there to look after it. Um, He calls his servants together and he entrusted his money to them while he was gone. That's what he does. You see, God trusts us. God provides for us and everything we have is God's. I mean, so it's all God's. Like, and you think about it. I don't know. I don't know about you, but um, there are certain things when our kids were little, I'd never entrust them with. (laughs) Like power tools. It's not good. We had a little friend, one of Oliver's little friends, got his dad's drill. And he'd seen his dad drilling, and he got a cordless drill, and he got a bit of wood. And, he, and so he put it on his leg, and he drilled a hole. And he stopped when he got to the bone, which was good, right? So you, there are things, because if you entrust the wrong things to the wrong people, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Um, it, it harms them, and it damages them. And, the, and, and then there's stuff that's really precious to us that we don't entrust. Um, to, to other people, right? But God says, this is the amazing thing. God says, I'm going to entrust to you, Lot, that which is most precious to me. I'm going to entrust life itself. I'm going to entrust other people to you. And God says, I'm going to entrust this beautiful world that I've made to you, Lot, to look after it, to manage it, to care for it. That's, that's a weighty responsibility and an enormous amount of trust, isn't it? The manager entrusts his servants. Uh, the manager uh, also provides. This is the other thing. If we're going to make space in our lives, part of what we need to drive out is the fear of not having enough. Uh, it's firstly the illusion that we control stuff. Once we're rid of that and we go, okay, it's all God's. It doesn't really belong to us. We're managers. We're looking after it. Then the next thing we've got to drive out is, well, the fear that I might not have enough. And so I have to come to a place where if there is a God, I trust this God to provide. And we were looking at this in the Sermon on the Mount earlier in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God, and most other things that you might need will be provided to you. He says, No, no, no. Seek first the kingdom of God. Live for God. And everything else that really matters to you, God will provide. You will lack nothing that will enable you to flourish as a human being. So uh, God provides. Now, you may think to yourself, hang on, God doesn't do a particularly good job of providing, right? Like his provision seems massively unevenly distributed, doesn't it? So, I mean, even in this congregation here, there, there are a range of distributions of all sorts of things. Um, you know, appreciation of my sense of humor. 
<laughs> an unequal distribution of a great good from God that uh, not everyone has. It's, uh, it's perplexing to me. But money, right? We, we, we vary in the distribution of wealth, even in this congregation. And then if you step back just from here, and there's a, there is a, there's a, grade, a grade here for sure, but when you step back globally, we're actually all massively wealthy, but the, distrib- the, the inequity of distribution and provision of God is massive, right? Oh, really? Does God provide? At Kairos on Friday night, listening to the stories of some of the, uh, the women who were in there, I just thought, gosh, what, what chance did some of them stand in life? You know, in for the second time on a drug offense after just burying her mother who died of drug-related uh, and addiction-related illness. And you go, oh, oh. It's National Sorry Day today. Right? So Margot isn't here. Um, uh, she, she's still a Christian. It's okay. Um, uh, she, uh, <laughs> she works now for an organization working with stolen generation indigenous women. And as part of preparing for a sorry day a ceremony out in Parramatta, she, with one of her ladies, she spent Friday uh, transcribing this lady's story the first time she's told it. And you just go, oh, oh, Lord, no. How can, how can someone here live through that? And so there's, there's massive inequality in, in God's provision. So what do we do with that? Because it's real, right? Like, uh, it's all easy for us to say, trust God in our situation of complete abundance. But, like, <laughs> what happens when, when the abundance isn't there? And when you, you know, well, there's a few thoughts I have. Um, one, it's really, really, really hard to be content and to trust God with what you have. We'll look at that over the next three weeks. It's a battle. So don't feel bad if you struggle with this, because that's normal. We, and the problem with that, and the reason is, we always compare ourselves upwards to those who have it better than us. If you're in, if, if, you, know, you, you always compare someone who's in better health than you, whose kids are doing better than yours, whose business is going better than yours, who's, who've got more money in the bank than you, who've got a better house than you. And, and you know what? Just compare yourself to people who have less. That's what Tim Wright did, the principal of Shaw, at, on Friday night. He looks up, and I reckon what struck him was out of the, the privileged, ex- extraordinary privileged bubble of the Shaw School community and the North Shore uh, Sydney elite to suddenly go, huh, you know? And isn't that true? So, so just stop comparing yourself to people who live on the water and compare yourself to people who live in a slum in Bangladesh and you'll start to have a whole different perspective on how God has provided for you, right? Just changes things because it's hard to trust God. The other thing, though, that I think is really important spiritually is, um, you know, Jesus says that we are to, uh, he says we're to learn from little children about how to live in the kingdom of God. So what what do you think that means? Well, a kid, a kid just trusts their mom and dad to provide, Right? And a kid just realizes their limits and asks when they have need, but doesn't think that they know everything. And you know what it is, what I've had to learn is as a little child, I have to trust that there is an infinitely wise, loving Heavenly Father who knows what's best for me, and even if I don't understand it. And there's a great, impenetrable mystery in my mind 
around the, the, the inequality in the world. But um, I have to say, you know, my Heavenly Father gets it, right? He knows. I don't. And I can rest content in that. There's a, there's a humility and a settledness in that. Now, I can still fight to make it better. I can still work to, to, to try and give people a hand, uh, a hand up and, uh, and help lift people out of poverty and address sickness and all those things. And, but uh, there's a mystery. And I just trust God and I fight with that. And I wrestle with it and I grapple with it and, uh, and that's okay. And if you do as well, welcome to the club. I mean, it, it's, it's hard, right? But it's, you trust God. He provides for us because cause everything we have, and you just have to keep coming back to that, everything we have comes from God. And uh, the, the, the implication of that from this passage is that God wants me to be a good manager. This is this. I mean, this is a, I don't know. You know, sometimes you think Jesus is a really comforting, gentle figure. Gentle Jesus. And, and, and he is. But that's a terrifying story. I mean, and maybe not for you. Maybe because we're all snowflakes here, we go, well... I'm sure I'm going to be the guy who gets the well done, good and faithful servant. You're a good steward. But have you ever thought you might be the bloke that gets, or the person who Jesus goes, get away from me. I'm going to cast you out. You've been a terrible failure. Stop and think about that for a moment. That's moderately terrifying. Do I hear an amen? I mean, that's, it's sobering, right? Like you go, ah. Oh. And, and, and I think Jesus tells this because, you know, what we do with our possessions, with our stuff, with our money, reveals what's going on in our hearts. And it matters. We matter massively to God. And our lives matter massively and our choices matter massively. And it's really, really important that we, we grapple with this, right? Because he wants us to be really good managers, uh, stewards. I, yeah. This could be embarrassing. I won't ask. I don't show your hand. Though we're past the election and the class warfare, so maybe we could. How many of you own an investment property or have ever owned an investment property or had a property where you've put tenants in? Don't show a hand, please. Uh, you know you've got two sorts of tenants. Those who trash your place and you can't wait to get rid of and those who look after it really well. There we go. That's it, right? And, and so God says to you and me, what kind of tenant are you going to be? Like, this is not our house. This is God's house. Are you going to trash it or are you going to add value to it? You know? You're going to take it for granted? not look after it? Or are you going to add value to it so that it's better when you move out than when you moved in? Like that's what Jesus is saying. We're to be good managers. Um, After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. Think about that. One day. If Christianity is true, and this may be a reason to hope it's not, One day, if Christianity is true, you know, you and I are going to have a conversation with Jesus that's going to go something like this. Jesus is going to sit me down and he's going to look at me and he's going, Mark, so tell me, 
how'd you, how'd you look after all the stuff I gave you? You know, Mark, I, I, gave you, I gave you a pretty good brain. What did you do with it? Mark, I, I gave you a whole bunch of really difficult situations in life growing up that made you extraordinarily resilient. What did you do with that? Um, Mark, I, I gave you powerful experiences of my love for you that really healed you and changed you and changed the whole course of your life. What did you do with that? Mark, I, you know, I, I gave you a bunch of money. You know? I know you, 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 you whinged and complained maybe sometimes that I didn't give you enough. And I, I realized it wouldn't be good for you to be you know, seriously wealthy. Uh, and I know you weren't in agreement with me on that, Mark. I, I get that. Because uh, I knew it would be really bad for you if you were a seriously high net worth individual. I knew how selfish you'd be, and, and it wouldn't be good for you, Mark. So. But, you know, with the stuff I gave you, Mark, what did you do with it? Ah, yes. You bought a house. Ah, oh, well done, dude. That was great. And, and what's happening to that house now? Oh, well, you know, Oliver and Freya are fighting over it. <laughs> the lawyer's going to get most of it. <laughs> uh, how'd it go? So, so you did that, Mark? Oh, awesome, man. And, you know. it's, 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 oh, imagine that conversation. How's that going to go with you and Jesus one day, hey? Uh, it's, he wants us. We're going to have to give an account. Uh, and we hate accountability. Um, we're, uh, one of the things that's interesting in this text, and there's a lot we could spend ages trying to unpack it, and um, one of the things that's interesting for me with the guy who was a really bad manager who really screwed it up was that he was afraid. He was just afraid. And I, we don't have time to think, and maybe in, in, a, in your small groups this week, you can think about why was he afraid? afraid of God. He was afraid of losing stuff. And I think it's really interesting, isn't it? When we think about our money and our wealth and our possessions, how much does fear shape our decisions, right? Like um, fear of uh, not having enough. Fear of not having enough to secure, fear of uh, not having enough to secure a comfortable and dignified retirement. Like that's real, like, you know, Healthcare costs, old age homes. Like, I'm scared. Like, we're, we're, told, we're taught to be scared of that stuff, right? Um, fear of losing what we've got. I remember years ago in a, the Young Families group we were in in Melbourne, many years ago, um, uh, I'd, I'd always had a fairly, and I still do, to be honest, have a fairly blasé attitude about money at one level. Because in my family history, like, it comes and it goes. Um, for all sorts of reasons, and you, you just, I don't know, you can't be too worked up about it at one level. Um, but I, I was talking with this guy in our group, one of the dads, so I think I was about 30, I was early 30s at the time, this guy would have been like 30s, a bit older than me, maybe late 30s, and he was the chief investment officer for a, a, a big funds management business, and very successful, very smart, um, a brilliant guy, really brilliant, um, and a really nice guy. And we're out on Glenferry Road in Hawthorne having a coffee. And um, I don't know, at the time, he must have been worth, I don't know, 10, 15 million. Uh, he'd made a lot of money very, very quickly. He was probably earning a million, million and a half a year uh, with bonus just every year, plus all his assets. And he sits, sat, we're talking about our kids 
and life. And he's grabbing the edge of the table. And he says, you know, Mark, um, capital is really, really hard to accumulate and incredibly easy to lose. And I've never been in the presence of someone as worried and scared of losing their money as that guy. And he had immeasurably more than, like, I mean, he could just have stopped working then and put it in a term deposit with the bankers and lived off the income and he would have been fine. And he was just captive by the fear. And so that fear made him a bad manager because out of his fear of losing it, he would never put it at risk to actually give it away or be generous or... Uh, he, he would work himself into the, and he still is, he, he took this, he then took this job where he was running the whole Asia, Asia office for a big investment bank while his family were back in Australia and he was just continually on a plane, you know, 100 hours a week traveling around and he had more than enough but he was just afraid and you know what, that's normal, that's just, he just landed in the place where <laughs> he could give full vent to a fear-driven life of accumulating great wealth. And, but that's a fear shapes us, doesn't it? So it's interesting. I, I find to think about, okay, what is it? I mean, here's, uh, you know, my fear about not having enough money is that money doesn't represent to me so much security, but it represents freedom. Like for me, it's, I, for, for me, it's money is freedom. Money is freedom to flee the Holocaust. Money is freedom to get away from people. <laughs> Money is, you know, so it represents, and the loss of money or not having enough is, is it's a threat to that. So we've got to think long and hard, what is, where's the fear? And, and it's not a good place to live out of fear. God, Jesus has a better place. It, it actually make, makes us do all kinds of really dumb decisions. Um, uh, we've, we've got to be a good manager. This, by the way, is not... It, making space in our lives for money is not a recipe to, to drop out and be a hippie and just say the simplistic answer, just, just chill out and give it all, all away, you know, and live with nothing. That's, that's not the answer. I love this verse. And there's a whole sermon series just in this verse. Riches can disappear fast. My friend was right. Man, it's easy to blow your capital. So hard to accumulate, so easy. So watch your business interests closely. Know the state of your flocks and your herds. Isn't that awesome? Like, be, being a good manager, looking after God's stuff means looking after God's stuff. Adding value. Investing wisely. Working hard. Saving. Planning for the future. Buying insurance. Or self-insuring. Like, know the state of your flocks and your herds. If you're running a business, run it really well. I actually think that creating wealth or surplus capital as a result of the application of God-given human creativity and ingenuity and our social brain in collaborative relationships of mutual and free trade and exchange that creates all this wealth. This is a God, this is a miraculous, divine, God-given mandate. Like it's a good thing to do. We take the resources, the things God has given us, and we, because we're made in the image of God, we just make it better. Like that's the story of the last couple of thousand years. Human progress. It's because God is at work and we're being good managers and we've got to care for the world and add value. So do your best. That's a good thing. 
It's the Protestant work ethic, by the way. It's good. Max Weber's analysis of um, the, the wealth effect of the Protestant Reformation, that when you understand this, you work hard. Uh, you, you make the best of yourself and your kids and your grandkids. It's good, right? Um, and it applies to all of life. Uh, I, had a f- <laughs> I have a friend who's very courageous, more than me, and uh, he's, he was, he's a, I play squash with him, and we, were, we had a game of squash during the week, and we're chatting afterwards, and we have this mutual, a very, a very old friend of his is, a, is an acquaintance of mine, and this guy's put on an enormous amount of weight. He's a very, very fine Christian leader. He's a great guy, but, but oh my goodness, he's got fat, like really, really fat. And, um, and this friend of mine goes, yeah, you know, so I, I caught up with this guy, and we, 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 we chatted, and we had lunch, and then I went away, and then I thought about it a bit, and I thought, no. So I picked up the phone, and I said, listen, we've got to meet again. So he goes, oh, why? So I says, no, I'll tell you when we meet. So he took him out for lunch, bought him a salad, <laughs> and said, uh, you are really, really fat, and you need to do something about it, because it's actually damaging your health. He's just had his knees done, and, uh, and your life, and your witness, and this is not who you should be. I thought, good on you. <laughs> but his approach was, he said, so the conversation was, you're leading a significant Christian organization and not, and not caring for your health is, uh, is actually damaging your usefulness. Now, I want to say right off the bat, I, would, I actually would never have that conversation. I don't tell that story to, to make any aspersions about anyone's body shape. I just thought this perspective that all of life is stewardship. You know, and, and again, know the state of your flocks and your herds. Don't worship your flocks and your herds, man. Know the state of your health. But don't worship your body. It's, we're, like, even if this guy goes and gets fit, he's still going to die, right? It's, like, it's just about prolonging his usefulness if he's able to. So there's no... Don't worship it. And, and in our context, I almost feel bad. I'm thinking, should I have told that story? Because in our context, we all worship being skinny in our sociodemographic stratum. And it's complex, right? But um, know the state of your flocks and your herds. Add value. Be a really good manager of every part of your life. And you know what will happen then? God rewards. God will reward good managers. Isn't that cool? To whom much is given, even more will be given. There's a, there's a spiritual dynamic in the kingdom of God that if you prove yourself faithful in the little things, God will give you greater things. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling the small amounts, and now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Isn't that cool? Ah, here's the thing, right? We often think about this. We, we think, well, you know, um, uh, if, I'm, if I'm really faithful, if you've been in church a while, you might think this. And by the way, this isn't the annual give more to church sermon, just so you can relax. We're not, we're not going there uh, at all. Um, uh, but we think, oh, he's got to be talking about money. If, I, if, I, if, I, if I'm a good steward of this money, then I'm going to get richer in terms of money. I actually don't think so at all. 
I think, I think what Jesus is talking about is something far more profound. You know what he's saying? He's saying um, even a lot of money for us is really a very little thing. But if you can prove yourself faithful in this little thing of just managing money, because like it's trivial, right? I mean, I don't know. Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world. Well, he and his wife, the richest divorcee in the world. See, you know, $50 billion. His wife has $50 billion. That's, for God, that's really, that's chump change. That's a little thing. He says, but listen, what's a really big thing for God? What do you, what's, what's really big on God's agenda? People. It's people. So I think that, that what we learn is that God says, you know what, if you, if you can show that you can look after me with this little stuff like money and possessions, and, and you can make space in your life with money and possessions and learn that you're a manager and learn that you're a steward, then you know what, you're the kind of person I can entrust other people to. I can give you spiritual responsibility for other people's souls. I can give you spiritual power to influence others. I can give you responsibility to be a blessing to other people. Because if I can trust you with money, I can trust you with people. And isn't that true today? Like, it's just so obvious. Like, if you can handle money well, and you're not greedy, and you're not fearful, and you're completely at peace and completely content, if that's where your heart is at, then you're probably in a good place to be somebody who can be entrusted to look after others. Because you're not going to use them for your own gain. You're not going to compare yourself to them. You're not going to be scared of them. You're not going to discriminate against the poor and the needy. You're going to be, you know, so I love that. I was like, yes, yes. Show yourselves to be good stewards of your life. And the more you do that, the more spiritual responsibility God will give you. Because he cares infinitely about every human soul. And he doesn't care that much about money. <laughs> but how we treat the money is a good litmus test of how we're going to treat people. So, that's the reward. <laughs> That, that you, you put in a place where God will give you more and more spiritual influence and responsibility and authority. And of course, I don't know about you, but I was thinking about this. And it's very uncomfortable for me. It's very uncomfortable, isn't it? Because I, I go, uh, man, I'd really better think about my attitude to money. <laughs> Duh. I'm sure if you've been in church a while, none of what I've said today is new. It's probably not. You've probably heard it all before, right? The problem is not the hearing. The problem is the believing and the doing. The, the problem is the forgetting. <laughs> that's, the, that's my problem. So let's build a church where we don't forget this and we remember it. And then... And then we'll have increasing spiritual power and influence over others because we're so, such great stewards of like the trivial stuff God gives us, like money. And now, guess what? If you want a transcendent vision, a moral compass, if you want something to live for in your life, why don't you live to hear these words? 
Imagine, hey? Imagine one day you walk up to Jesus. You've crossed over from this world into the next. You fell asleep. You woke up in the presence of Jesus. And you get up and you stand up and Jesus comes to you with his still nail-scarred hands and the big gaping scar and wound in his side and the scars on his head from the crown of thorns. And he comes to you and he, and he just wraps his arms around you and he says, welcome home. Well done, good and faithful servant. What, what, what better thing is there to live for than that? And, and of course, because if you live for that, everything else will fall into place in your life. That's Jesus' offer and promises. If you live for that, if that's your transcendent vision, if that's the orienting kind of moral compass for your life, everything else will work out. Don't, don't worry about that. All right, so. My whole life, you know, my dad left when I was young. My whole life, I just wanted a dad to look at me and go, I'm proud of you, son. You know, I'd, I'd do well at school and I'd do well on the sports field. And all I, it was never enough. All I ever wanted was my dad to go, man, I'm proud of you. He only ever said that to me once, just before he died. But I know, so, but I know that there's a, there's a father who will be proud of me. <laughs> That's what I'm living for. How about you? Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's, let's be a church where we live for that, hey? Let's be a community where we keep ourselves on track with that. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, forgive us, forgive me for um, oh, just the fear and the confusion and the forgetting and the, the selfishness that can creep into my attitude with money. I confess that sometimes, maybe more times than I possibly can dare to honestly admit, I'm a, not a particularly good manager of your resources, not a good steward of everything you've given me. So forgive me, forgive us. And I pray that you'll set us free in this church. You'll set us free even this morning to experience your love and grace afresh and to know how wonderful it is to be loved by you, to know that, that you who, who, didn't, who, who wouldn't hold back even dying for us, you'll never hold back on providing for us other stuff, money and food and shelter. So, so set us free from worry and from fear and, and give us a vision of being just great managers, great stewards. And Lord, may that day come for each of us in this room when we wake up in the presence of Jesus and he reaches over hugs us welcomes us home and we hear from him those words well done my good and faithful servant amen